So I usually sit where you are, and uh, I have to admit that if I hadn't been reading this passage several times this week and kind of considering the context, that knowing myself, I can kind of start to zone out kind of the middle verses a little bit. It's a passage that's familiar, has familiar phrases and stuff, but it is a passage that's really important and packed with a lot. And Kathy and I talked about that it's a passage that we both enjoy a lot, but as you kind of read through, there's just a variety of things that are said here by King David. Familiar and comforting verses, but also some that are very challenging. But I think also as we kind of look today at the title that Thanksgiving isn't a holiday. This is not a plea to upend another institution or anything along that line. But much more toward the idea that being genuinely thankful is contrary to our very, uh, the way that we do life, to our self-sufficiency and, and to our work. It acknowledges that what I need most, I can't produce, I can't maintain, I can't protect. I'm dependent on somebody else, is what thankfulness says. Uh, if I am thankful, it says that I need someone outside of me. This psalm also asserts truths that should reassure me, challenge me, and force me to consider how well do I really know the God that I read and I sing about, and how willing am I to be to be dependent on him and not my own abilities. So as we advance into November, whatever day of the month it is, uh, can we consider becoming people that don't just annually lean on the need to have a holiday to prompt us to be thankful for kind of the big T, big D Thanksgiving day, but more to develop the, the year-round, in fact, in fact, lifelong discipline of kind of small T discipline of Thanksgiving. Like David, who wrote this Psalm 34, can we acknowledge that genuine gratitude is often forged out of events and consequences that we would never choose for ourselves? We can emerge into an accurate view of the eternal God, but it requires an honest and humble reflection. And reflection that lots of times we do not like to do. I mean, we love to reflect on successes, wonderful things, um, raises, trips, and all of that sort of thing. But to be genuinely thankful sometimes requires us to reflect on things that have been very painful that God has done a work through. Psalm 34 is a song that's written by King David and crucial to the impact for us to understand this psalm of these and these lyrical phrases to know his very recent history. This is not a psalm that's prompted by a great military or internal victory on David's part. In fact, quite the opposite. In 1 Psalm 21 is the account of David who is still to be fully installed as the only king of, of Israel. He has not been yet. And he is being chased by the king and the army, King Saul, who is still the king and to the point of wanting to pursue him to death. David's life is on the line. He's not looking back as we are and seeing that he wrote a number of psalms and he was successful and failed and succeeded and uh, was in the lineage of Jesus. He doesn't know what we know. David believes that he could genuinely, genuinely believes that he could lose his life. And like us, as he matures, David kind of swerves in and out of, of fear and faith. 
Um, he has got a, a checkered life as we read through the Psalms. But his life is truly threatened and he is consumed by a very understandable fear. But without asking God or seeking wise counsel, his strategy becomes that he's going to run by himself and to take with him the sword of one late Goliath of Gath. Yeah, that Goliath. So he takes with him, running to Goliath's hometown, the sword that was probably very outsized for David because Goliath was over nine feet tall and a warrior. David runs in his own strategy and his own strength with Goliath's sword to the city of Gath. And if you kind of remember the story of David when he was a youth, he slayed Goliath, but with a stone and a, and a sling. And now what he's dependent on is the actual sword of Goliath. Kind of an aside here, I was having coffee on Friday with somebody who's like 32, and I used the word flannel graph, like the flannel graph Sunday school thing. And I mean, he's very gracious, wonderful young man, and he looked at me like he had absolutely no idea when I said flannel graph, like it was a clothing chart or something. So I do remember the flannel graph story of David and Goliath, and David said as a youth, he had the wisdom, the trust in God to say, I am not going to use the typical armor. I'm not going to use the typical shield and the typical sword. But as an adult, David has, in this instance, has gone backwards, and he's taking Goliath's sword with him to Goliath's hometown. When he gets there, he is immediately recognized and, and people say, isn't this David that songs have been written about that Saul, King Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. He's immediately recognized and he is surrounded by the Philistine king and the Philistine army. And what David's strategy becomes, uh, as 1 Samuel 21 tells us, is that he is going to feign insanity. And basically, he is at the city wall, at the city gate, and clawing in ways that left scarred marks on, on the wood of the city gate and drooling into his beard. Uh, the strategy works. Uh, basically, the king says, do we not, and this is almost an exact quotation, do we not have enough madmen in, in Gath already? Why do we need this one? It's not a really great political slogan, but, but it worked. We do not need more mad people in Gath was basically the strategy. And, and David, was, David was released. But think of that contrast of David having wisdom as a youth that he wasn't applying when he was an adult. He reverts to what would be typical, typical wisdom and tr typical strategy. Directly out of that experience, David pours out the truth the truths that we read in Psalm 34. Some things that are very encouraging and some things that are very challenging. Having learned through this deeply humiliating experience that David has inflicted on himself, he praises God for God's reliable and nurturing character, and you see that throughout the psalm. Mika has read it, but I want to go through the things that David says about, about God, and then we're going to look at things that David encourages us to do. So as David reflects back on this experience, and it's not said, but my anticipation 
would be that he probably was reflecting on as well. This is what I did as a youth. This is what I did as an adult. And God has been faithful and forgiving to me. So David says this of his God and our God. God is worthy of daily and continual praise. He hears and he answers me. He delivers me from fear. God is demonstrably experientially good. He is my safe refuge. He provides me with good things. He watches out for me. He listens to me. God comes near to me when I'm brokenhearted and he leans in when my spirit is crushed. He keeps me safe from very real threats. God has forgiven me. God has redeemed my soul. He will not condemn me. It's the last verse of the psalm. So these are all the things that David is convinced and convicted about his God as he has come through a crisis of his own manufacturing. Secondly, David turns to the people of that era and to us, and he points us toward choosing a wise response to God's faithfulness. And this psalm emphasizes our response of trust and and gratitude. Thankfulness is not really an optional thing that we add on to a human scheduled holiday. And that's part of the reason I said Thanksgiving is not a holiday. Both internal gratitude and expressed thankfulness are spiritually intrusive works that God does in us, his kids. Here, David, as he wisely guides us to experience and share the goodness of God, in verse 8, he says this, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. I love, as a pretty visual person, I love the idea of taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see God's character. When I think of taste, one of the things I remember back to immediately is being a freshman in high school and a man who is now head of a, of a medical system in the state of Iowa took a Q-tip and would put on our tongues in each of our class sweet and sour and something else to kind of show that that taste is determined at different points of our tongue. The only thing is, this man, 42 years ago, used the same Q-tip on each of us as 14-year-olds. He leads a medical system in central Iowa. His name is Jim Fitzpatrick. But when I think of taste, I think, you know, our tongues are designed for enjoyment. Um, They're also designed as well to know if something is really hot and we're about to endanger ourselves. But we had a friend this year that uh, in February had throat cancer and had surgery on his his tongue and, and radiation and for many months, six, seven months, had very little taste in his tongue kind of tastes were distorted and it really affected how much he was willing to eat because foods just didn't taste good. So this idea that God provides to us the idea of taste, I am here for your survival and I'm also here for you to enjoy things that just don't need to taste great, but they do. Taste that I am someone that helps you to survive, but also to enjoy life. And the same thing with seeing. You know, we don't need to be able to see colors to survive. That is a bonus thing that God has given to us. And I see a couple of you've kind of 
cock your heads like, what are the situations where we would need color to, to be able to survive? I mean, we need shapes. We need to be able to see that something, something is coming at us. But we could adapt for the world being in black and white. But I think God has provided color for us to know his character and to know that he is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And he is so good that he is someone that you can trust him as being your refuge. Again, as the calendar advances toward the end of the year and what is now commonly called the holiday season, can I ask, how have you tasted and seen the goodness of God in this year and previous years? If you would reflect, how is it that I have seen just the abundant goodness of God that no one else could produce? It could be in beauty, it could be in survival, it could be in refuge. But how have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? I hope that you have tasted and seen the creativity and the power of our God. Recently, I've been touched by the many years of God's faithfulness, the many years for me, and the patterns that help me to better appreciate the active work for his glory inside of me. Among many other events and blessings, uh, the year 2021 will be a year that I will remember continuing of COVID and global and political challenges. And even as I wrote the challenges, it's like whatever word do I put, COVID and politics and the globe, all of that. But then also um, this year was the year that we finally celebrated my class's 40th class reunion. It was delayed last year, but I was kind of nice at, at work to say I'm going for my 40th class reunion. So people think I'm 58 instead of 59. So I went back to Washington, Illinois, which is in the center of the state. Um, it's a town of about 16,000. I mean, it just is kind of that idyllic, almost Rockwellian-looking town. It has a square with you know, two-story buildings around it and a fountain and some really cool Victorian houses and all of that. Um, so to be able to go back for my class reunion and have several coffees a day, I just could not sleep at all. I mean, when you do five or six coffees a day, that's going to affect your sleep. But there's kind of the big events. There's parade and a big event on Saturday night. But individual conversations with people that was, you know, face-to-face -face coffee or lunch, individual conversations at the big event. And one of the things that just really struck me was anyone that I talked to for more than three minutes... Um, we ended up talking about our parents. I mean, all of us have had someone that has passed away or is seriously ill. Seriously. I mean, these are not, some of them not people that I know very well at all. But if we talk for more than three or four minutes, it would turn toward, here's the biggest thing in my life. 25 years ago, it was about us, you know, having kids and, you know, where we're living and all that. We mostly talked about our parents, and just kind of the, the learning of that. You know, you think you learn a lot by, by my mom's not on the internet, so I can say anything right now, that's cool. Um, you think you learn a lot by, lear by raising children, you learn some different things by, by helping your parents. I had a conversation literally in the center of the town square uh, with a friend that I hadn't talked to for, for a long time, and we shared some really painful things that we kind of have in common, and we're able to pray there together as people are you know, going around the square. But another thing from, from this year, I, I took the opportunity again, and, and it just touched me in a different way than it even has the previous two times. Uh, each of my grandmothers lived in the same town, 
And they each played a huge spiritual and emotional role in my life. And they still do. Uh, Grandma, Mad- Grandma Madlinger uh, taught me to play Scrabble and that scrambled eggs always get uh, fresh cut chives from, from her garden outside and I always would go to get those. Grandma Heilman made me feel better about being a big kid and she praised my creativity. All of my cousins, 10 or 12 cousins, are, are like, were like the skinniest children you can imagine. And I was not. And, you know, as we kind of came in as parade of, you know, three families into her house, you know, she would stop me. I'm sure she said wonderful things to the other grandchildren as well, but she'd always, she'd always pat me. I think she probably did this as an adult probably when you were around too. She'd say, this one has such a nice big body. And... There was just something about that. Of course, it's grandma, and it's, you know, it's not that you know, wonderful to think that your grandmother has a great, you know, your grandmother thinks that you have a big body, but there's just something about that reassurance of you know, grandma patting you on the shoulder. But there were much more important things than that. Uh, when she passed away in 1999, I flew back from Oregon to, to help with her funeral and you know, going through her Bible. You know, I anticipated that I would pull out some verses that she had underlined. She had the same Bible for forever. I mean, like the pages were really flimsy and, and um, just very thin. She had never underlined anything in, in her Bible. Uh, but there were things that just as cousins we shared of what she had done and stories that each of us, each of us shared my two grandmothers lived about two miles away from each other, very different. I don't ever remember them being in the same room. I don't ever remember them coming to any events or activities or performances that I did. They, they may have. I don't remember them being at my high school reun- or high school graduation. But all of my memories of them are either at their church or in the safety of their house. And lots of stories at my grandmother's houses. So when I went in September... Uh, there is now a city trail that connects the two home sites about two miles apart. And I walked that trail again and felt so grateful to God for much, not all, of my family's heritage and my heritage. Um, Grandma Heilman's strawberries and rhubarb are not there anymore, but the soybean fields are that my cousins and I pulled weeds from. These are things that are not said in the Northwest. You just don't weed beans up here. So I don't know how to say that differently. We pulled weeds out so that the soybeans would do better. My cousins and I spent hours and hours in the summer pulling, pulling beans at Grandma's, and she paid us like a dime an hour. I walked past the window of Grandma Madlinger's nursing home uh, where I learned to play triominoes. I ran into a high school classmate that I barely knew on this trail, which was great. And it's right next to, don't Google this now, but you can later, Washington, Illinois, Lincoln statue. For whatever reason, my town now has a fiberglass statue. It's like 30 feet tall of Abraham Lincoln and a depiction of what looks like Perry Como and not in his cool years, like he's doing a Land's End commercial or something. So walk by that and talk to this uh, classmate at the at the Lincoln and Como statue. And Washington's mayor, uh, Washington, our town, was he was walking into the police station. I was able to talk to him a little bit, and he let me pray with him and pray for our town. Uh, the grain elevator that we went to frequently is now a beauty school, and thankfully it's neither the fault of Trump nor Biden. 
I crossed the railroad tracks where, and this is also a very dating thing, crossed the railroad tracks where in 1976 we put quarters on the track and the bicentennial train ran over and flattened them. Like you could tell what train had, had done it or something. Um, but as I arrived at Grandma Madlinger's house, and Kayleen, if you want to put that up, um, it's a 114-year-old house. Uh, I would tell you it would, that house would cost eight times as much here as it does in Washington, Illinois. Um, but I was grateful literally on the two miles that I walked and saw a lot of houses. Her house, her old house, 117 North Pine, had more flowers around it than any other house. And that just really touched me. Uh, her peonies, her roses weren't there. But there was just something about there being so many flowers and having a family there. And in the upper right, you can't really tell it, but it's, it's leaded and beveled glass. And I remember as a kid, you know, laying down for a nap. And as the sun set in the afternoon, the sunshine would come through and cause all these prisms on the floor in the summertime. And then the wintertime, it, the prisms would be up on the wall. And even now, when I hear the word prism or spectrum, I think of Grandma Madlinger's living room and the sunlight coming through that beveled glass. Uh, but much more importantly was what they, what, what they taught me. And kind of in the midst of some challenging times, um, um, other people in my family that were demeaning and angry grew through that, but my grandmother's provided stability. I went to my home church on Sunday, uh, and the old people used to be 80 years older than me. The old people are now are 20 years older than me. All of the people at that church had like really solid names like Wilbur and uh, Wesley, and there was a guy at the door that always greeted us. His name was Ray Grenzenbach. Like, like all of the names that I remember growing up sound like, like really stout cheese names. Like give me a you know, three-pound wedge of a Ray Grenzenbach. But that's part of growing up, growing up in a German community. But all of those folks recognized me. They didn't know I was coming, but they all recognized me. And from a, from a discipline of thankfulness, there are things that I just have about my hometown and my family that are, that are disturbing and, and sad. But now reflecting back to see that God provided through those growing up years what I needed. Uh, not everything that I wanted, but everything and everyone that I needed. I was reminded of Inez Gwaltney, my Sunday school teacher. One Sunday when I was about six, the pastor preached on 1 John 5 and used the phrase, read, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son doesn't have life. And that just really touched me as a, as a kid. Like, I want to have life. I want to have life here and I want to have life for eternity. And so I talked to Miss Inez about that the next Sunday and, and she led me in prayer to ask forgiveness and to apply what Jesus had done on the cross to my life. Very thankful for Miss Inez. Every place, including where you grew up, has great memories and pain mixed in. My hometown is not idyllic. If you drew, drove through it, you would think that it is. It's not. But God provided the people and experiences that, that I absolutely needed. And I am thankful for Clara Madlinger and Hazel Heilman. And they and their love of God still impacts me decades after they passed away. So when I think of Thanksgiving, it's not primarily a holiday. It's, it's years of God's provision. It's not, you know, a trip or a raise or, or just good health in 2021. But it is that God has been faithful through many, many years. 
And I believe that the Holy Spirit is, is making me and is willing to make all of us healthier and more stable and, and purposeful. Not because of the number of years, but because God, my rescuer, is doing that. I've tasted and seen the goodness of God. And I'm thankful that I don't need the prompting of a holiday to be thankful. And then verse 14, Davis, David give us, gives us another direction. He says, depart from evil and do good. Your God is good. I'm pointing you to do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Um, I've had a work relationship that's been a challenge throughout the time that I've been at where I work and really addressed that about three or four months ago and felt that God really gave me the words. And, and honestly, over the last four months, God has changed that relationship to be much more peaceful. Real gratitude, though, uh, likely will require us being involved in messy situations and with difficult people. But refusing to confront evil or injustice or division, I can falsely appear to be kind. But in reality, we must lean into some of the most challenging of relationships and see what God will do. Have you seen yourself in the past year or over the years growing in conviction of what is right and wrong and growing the ability to minister lasting peace through the grace of Jesus Christ? I'm not very effective at doing both of those things of recognizing wrong and being gracious and peaceful at the same time, but I'm growing in it a little bit. Another direction from King David is in verse 18. An encouragement. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. There was a, a song as I was growing up, but then verses throughout scripture several times that use the phrase, the sacrifice of praise. The sacrifice of praise. And as a kid, I, didn't, I just didn't understand that because praise was, you know, Mrs. Phillips was on the piano, Mrs. Summer was on the, was on the organ, and Mr. Langson was, for some reason, doing this with his hands. Praise was, this is a time when we've come together and, and we're singing, we're singing about good things. But as I've gotten older, and maybe it's true for you as well, there are things that to have a time to be able to come to God and be thankful, to praise him, is very difficult. There are things that just hurt our hearts. And I'm thankful that he is the shepherd and the guardian of my soul. And he has allowed me to be present with those that are in tremendous pain, who have crushed spirits. And he is teaching me that to acknowledge that my spirit is crushed um, brings me closer to him. And then a final um, statement from David is the very last verse, verse 22. He says, the Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Keep in mind, David has written this after he's done something just really stupid and humiliating and demeaning. And God has pulled him out from that and now is establishing him as the, as the king of Israel. So David failed God, but David saw that God did not fail or reject him. God loved him and rescued him and was reliable and faithful and had an amazing purpose for David's life, even though there were failures in the future as well. So this morning, as, as we take communion, I would just really encourage you, as, as Tommy and Daniel come to lead us in a few minutes, to taste and see that the Lord is good, that as you take communion, to you know, reflect on the bread. It's representing 
visually the body of Jesus, the body of Jesus and representing the very dramatically, painfully lost blood of Jesus that was required for our salvation. That salvation for me was, came about at age six, but it was secured by Jesus on the cross. And I'm, I'm very, very grateful for that. So I just conclude by, by saying that true thanksgiving um, is work. Uh, we can celebrate it. It can be a holiday. But being thankful can, can require you to reflect back on the past, to be honest about your failures, about other people's failures, and how God has redeemed something very good out of some things that could have been very bad and very offensive to him. Thanksgiving is a holiday. It should be. But primarily, Thanksgiving should be work that really restores our souls and causes us to say, God is good. He's a rescuer. He does good for me. He loves me. He protects me. And he's not undone by my failures. He has redeemed me. And he is a God that gives me a living hope and turns graves into something that's beautiful, into gardens. So let's pray together and then Tommy and Daniel will lead us. Father, I thank you that you teach us through the years. You help us to remember some things that bring us great joy and lift us up. You help us to remember painful things and see you working. Father, I thank you that we can sing to you and acknowledge that you are good even when we fail you. And you teach us and bring us to a place of safety and hope and great purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.